0: You can take your bibles with me this evening and turn to Philippians 2. We will not be there long as this evening will effectively be a topical message. However, it is based in Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, the passage which we have considered over the past 2 weeks title of the sermon simply Jesus is God whenever something becomes familiar there can be a temptation to take it for granted we take for granted the ability to travel hundreds of miles maybe even thousands of miles in a matter of hours because mass transportation is so prevalent something which even as uh, as early as 100 years ago maybe was not even fathomable for most people we take for granted that we will be able to eat when we get hungry because technology and infrastructure has made food inexpensive and and, and plentiful within our country. We also can be tempted to take knowledge for granted, can't we? To forget how much we have learned and where that knowledge comes from and even why it is so important. This is one of those great temptations for ministers that because we have spent a good number of years studying, we can forget what it was like or what it is like to be someone who doesn't know all this stuff. And they come into a church setting and they uh, seek to understand and be discipled. And and, uh, even some of the basic things which we would take for granted are things which are not so simple for them. And we're going to talk about one of those this evening. As we've studied over the past couple weeks, we came across a statement which is very, very simple in its essence, but very deep in its implications. Christ Jesus, who... Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. A statement which translated in simplicity means Jesus is co-equal with the Father. That Jesus is God. And as we say that, and we believe that, the question is, do we understand it? The relationship between Jesus and the Father. It's one of the things we deal with in the Good News Club. We ask a question and the answer is Jesus and they say God. And we say, well, yeah, but no. Uh, because it is God, but it's not God. The answer is not God, it's Jesus. But Jesus is God, right? And there are times where the answer, uh, where, where the answer is the Father, God, right? And, and, and they say Jesus and you say, well, Jesus is. Is one with the father but the answer is really the father and well yes but they're they're God right Jesus is God and and I get this at the jail too and and uh, the 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 questions as to okay well um, Jesus is God but then Jesus talks to God and 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 so then they start to hear about these other theories of Jesus being a created God, such as the Mormons would believe, or the Jehovah's Witness might believe, and they say, oh, well, that makes sense that he's a God, but a lesser God, and then it becomes pantheistic, and, uh, and, and, and things just get a little bit messy, right? So I want to try to iron some of that out this evening. We use the word Trinity, we use the word Godhead in attempts to define the relationship of the father and Jesus and the holy spirit. And this evening I want us to simply walk through a very simple, very basic a very basic overview, a very basic summary of how it is that we have a measure of confidence that Jesus is God. How we can relate the father, the son and the holy spirit in our minds and perhaps be able to better articulate to others what it is we believe about this very basic of Christian doctrines that we call the doctrine of the Trinity. I do not intend this message to break any new ground. Much to the contrary, my intent is to carefully cultivate in our minds very old ground, and to help us understand the history of this doctrine and why it is we believe what we believe as it relates to who God is, and then finally to an extent why it matters. So we begin our journey at the beginning and by that I mean creation. The Bible tells us this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. So the Bible begins with the historical account of God's creative work, that God created the heaven and the earth, and that the earth was then without form and void. And within the scope of this created work, we find in verse 2 that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. As it would appear, we are introduced to a God, right? A singular God. God created, the Spirit of God moved, God said, and things were affected into being. Simple enough. Until we get to verse 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, where things take an interesting turn. The Bible says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. As we come to verses 26 and 27, we find that God, in speaking of himself, uses the plural pronoun rather than the singular pronoun. Now, we still see God, and the Bible even says there in verse 27, male and female created he, them, right? And that's the singular pronoun. And yet, as God is speaking to himself, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then, following this determination by God, God did, in fact, make man in his own image. And this here we find a first hint that God might be more than just him and may in fact, in a sense, be them. Now, if you have ever done any reading on this topic, you will quickly find that the idea that God here uses the plural pronoun is a really bad argument for the Trinity a bad argument for the idea that God may be more than one person. And the reason why this is a bad argument is because throughout history there is this thing called the majestic plural. And the majestic plural is a reference to the fact that throughout history kings and emperors and any number of men uh, in great positions of authority and of power and of glory and of majesty have referred to themselves or have been referred to in the plural in order to give them or to give themselves, as the case may be, an added element of greatness. So they will talk in the plural, or they will be referenced in the plural. The king uh, the, the, they, they will speak to the king and they will, they, was, they will say they instead of him. Or the king will, instead of saying me, he will say our. And in doing so, he will, in a sense, inflate his own majesty. And so this idea of the majestic plural uh, is f- somewhat prevalent throughout history as it would relate to great men. And because of it, people say, well, the fact that, that the majestic plural is used does not imply plurality of persons. It simply implies greatness. And yet, knowing that Genesis was written by Moses, and thus becomes one of the oldest written works in existence, the question we ask is this. Was God written in the plural by Moses simply because that is what other kings and great men did in the day? Or, is it that kings and great men began to call themselves in the plural because of the way God referenced himself, did God set a precedent in the writings of Moses that then other kings and great men followed? We don't know the answer to that question, but if indeed that second possibility is true, then there's really no reason why we cannot see the references of God in the plural as a legitimate indication of the multi-person nature of God. We then add to this some other thoughts. First, let's come back to the idea that God made man in his own image. So God says, let us make man in our image. And so we have this plurality idea, and this plurality idea of God is thus making man in his image. And as we consider man, we recognize that man is made up of several parts himself. He has a body, he has a soul, and he has a spirit. He has a part of him that wills something to be done, a part of him that energizes that thing into action, and then he has a part of him, that would be the body that actually does the action, right? And people define the difference between the soul and the spirit in any number of ways. Typically, the way that I, I regard it is that the, the, the soul is the personality. That's the part of me that makes me, me, as it relates to... Um, who I am as a person, the Spirit is the God-aware part of me, and that God-aware part of me is either dead or alive, right? And that it is in, intrinsically affected by my decision-making process. So guilt and bitterness and shame and resentment or, or obedience and love and righteousness, these things have a intrinsic effect on my spirit and that has an intrinsic effect on my soul, which then has an intrinsic effect on my body. So that we can't, we can't just separate one of them. I can't do something to my body without affecting me, Something cannot happen to my soul without affecting me. I've told you before about any number of times where I've been sharing the gospel with someone and they have had a a number of what what are are generally termed today mental illnesses. Generally speaking, particularly multiple personality disorder, bipolar, schizophrenia. And after sharing the gospel and then receiving the gospel, how over the course of time those symptoms have abated and they have lost their bipolarism. They have, they, their, their, their schizophrenia is no longer a problem. And this has happened I- I- several times uh, within the course of the years of my ministry. Now, I never encourage them to go off meds or anything of the sort. That's not what we do. But over time, they have gotten to the point where they've said, I don't need these things anymore. Their doctors have said, you don't need these things anymore. And it seems as though because they have gotten the things ironed out in their soul or in their spirit, depending on what they're dealing with, it is ironing out things all over. You can see the same thing with physical diseases sometimes, physical ailments and resentment and bitterness and such. And so we we see that these parts are intrinsically tied one to another. And yet though they are intrinsically tied one to another, they are in fact distinct within us. To this end, we find thus we would generally describe man as a three-part being. And the Bible tells us God made man in his own image, right? And so we already begin to see some measure of correlation here, that God uses this majestic plural to speak of himself, and then as he's using this majestic plural, he is speaking within himself to make man in his image, and when man is, in fact, made, God creates a body, and then God breathes into that body the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul. And so it is that the body is breathed into, that word breath being the word for spirit, and thus as the spirit is breathed into the body, man becomes a living soul, and thus he is made in man's, or in God's image. We continue past creation then, as we consider this idea, and well, first let's go back for just a moment, before we continue past creation. Then think of when God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water, and the Word of God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Perhaps it is that we are seeing there, similar to that of a man, a multi, multiple individual parts working as one coherent whole. That there is a will that is being empowered to do a work. A father, through the power of his spirit, empowering the word to do the creative work. Now, let's continue past creation, and then we will introduce you to more and more of this God. So, we, we continue past creation, and very quickly, the Bible begins to take for granted that, that this God exists and that He is something special. He is quickly given the name Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which we know as Jehovah, a derivative of the Hebrew word meaning to be. He gives Himself this name, though. We do not know that until Exodus chapter 3 when he introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush. There's no doubt as we walk through the text, however, even before Exodus chapter 3, that the God who created all things is called the Lord or Jehovah. And it is here that we begin to see the appearances of the Lord. Abraham, the Bible says, speaks with the Lord who appeared as a man in Genesis 18. The Lord sits with Abraham and he eats with him. So we read in Genesis 18, beginning in verse 1, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. That would be Abraham. And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Verse 8, skipping to verse 8. And he took butter and milk and a calf. When he had dressed it, he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. So the Lord, the Bible tells us, with two other men, who we will find later to be angels themselves, they'll be sent to Sodom and Gomorrah, right, uh, sit down to eat with Abraham, and They have a physical interaction, and Abraham acknowledges within that physical interaction that he is interacting with the Lord, Jehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We find a similar instance in Exodus chapter 3. I already spoke to you about that point, because that's where God introduces himself. Let's consider it just a little more carefully, where God introduces himself to the children of Israel as the I Am, appearing in a bush. The bush was burning, but the Bible says it was not consumed. Moses sees this thing, and he goes aside to see what's going on. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, And when the Lord saw that he, he, the Lord, remember, saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Skipping to verse 13. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say to them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say to the children unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So God introduces himself here as I am that I am or the I am. Given the name in Hebrew, Jehovah, some say Yahweh. There's quite a controversy as to which one of those is more correct. Yahweh is the more modern scholarship version. Uh, I believe that there's still a lot of really good reasons why Jehovah is more likely uh, when you do the study, there's, there's some very good reasons why Jehovah was used in the King James Version as opposed to a more modern sensibility of Yahweh. And again, this is translated consistently in our Bibles as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. There are a few times where it is not. There's one, uh, a couple of times in the prophets where God is called Jah, um, J-A-H, and it's all in caps. Uh, there are also a couple of times where Lord, the word, Hebrew word Adonai, is combined with Jehovah. And because Adonai is the word Lord, you'll see Lord in lowercase and then God in all case. Lord, God, Adonai, Jehovah. And there God is Jehovah and it's all in caps. And so where where you see this idea of, of it being all in caps in the Old Testament, generally speaking, if it's the name of God, we're talking about the name Jehovah. And we find that the Lord appears all throughout the Old Testament, oftentimes called the angel of the Lord. He appeared to Joshua before Jericho. We'll talk more about that in a moment. He appeared to Manoah in the time before the judges. In the time of the judges, the time before Samson becomes a judge. And while not every instance of an angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is, in fact, the Lord himself, There is an unambiguous characteristic that, when we see it, tells us that the angel of the Lord is, in fact, Jehovah and not just an angel. And that unambiguous characteristic is, does he accept worship? If this angelic being accepts worship, then this angelic being is not just a messenger of God, he is, in fact, Jehovah himself. We gain particular insight into this reality in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, where twice John is so overwhelmed by what he is seeing in the apocalyptic visions that he has given, when this angelic messenger shows him the things that are to come, that he falls down on his face to worship this angelic messenger. The first of these we find in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. The Bible says, John writing here, and I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And again in Revelation chapter 22, verse 9, Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, again him falling on his face, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. So these messengers knew themselves to be unworthy of personal worship. They acknowledged that they, like men, are simply fellow servants of the Most High God. To this end, throughout the Old and New Testaments, when we see the angel of the Lord appear, or in Joshua's case, called the captain of the Lord's host, any number of names that, that can be given, when we see these things, and men fall upon their faces in worship, and in doing so, they are not rebuffed, we can presume that the appearance is the Lord himself. Add to this the fact that any number of times after the fact, the person in question says, I have just spoken with the Lord. We see it with Abraham. We see it when Jacob wrestles with the Lord. We see it with Gideon. We see it with Manoah, where they acknowledge, I have just spoken face to face with Jehovah. We've mentioned, I just mentioned several of these. I mentioned Abraham from Genesis 18. Joshua speaks face to face with the captain of the Lord's host. And in that instance, Joshua sees him and the captain of the Lord's host immediately says, take off thy shoes from off thy feet for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Where have we read that before, right? Exodus chapter three. He has to take off his shoes because he's standing in holy ground because he's there before the Lord. Manoah, in Judges 13, is amazed that he was not killed because he had seen the Lord face to face. We could also speak of Gideon, as I mentioned, in Judges 6, Jacob, Genesis 32, wrestling with the Lord, and even Balaam in Numbers 22 acknowledges that he spoke with the Lord. And all of this in order that we establish the not uncommon instances throughout the Bible of the Lord being seen and interacting with men physically. This was not necessarily all that uncommon, particularly in the early days before the... um, kingdom before the monarchy. And the reason why this is so significant is because of that which we considered together in our morning service a few weeks ago. Remember when we talked in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 15 and 16 about the God that dwells in light unto which no man can approach and how John 1 verse 18 and how 1 John 4 verse 12 tells us no man has seen God at any time. And how God told Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, that no man shall see him and live. And in this, we find a very curious contradiction, don't we? We find a very curious contradiction where God explicitly will not let Moses see him lest Moses die. And yet Manoah saw the Lord. And he was, he was amazed that he didn't die, but he didn't. And Gideon was amazed that he didn't die, but he didn't. And Abraham spoke with the Lord face to face. And Jacob wrestled with the Lord. The Lord put his knee out of joint, right? And yet, no man has seen God. And it is in this that we begin again to suspect that there's more to the Lord than meets the eye. But then we add one more uniqueness to this mix and that being the declaration of God as the one and only God. So the most famous of these passages is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And we see it in Zechariah 14, verse 9 as well. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. The Lord is one Lord. There's no other God before him. All other gods of the earth are nothing but stone and metal and wood. We considered this before. Psalm 115 makes this clear. Verses 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. So the Lord is one Lord. His name is one. He has not been seen, nor can any man see him and live. And yet many of the men in the Old Testament saw the angel of the Lord, spoke to the angel of the Lord. And the seeming contradiction inspires questions. Questions which, throughout the Old Testament, were generally not uh, spoken unto. We see these things, yet it does not appear as though anyone feels a dramatic contradiction with them in the Old Testament. But the New Testament clears it all up, doesn't it? So we enter into the Gospel of John and we're introduced to a man called the Word. John 1, 1 through 1-3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here we have the beginning of a declaration that there is a person who was from the beginning called the Word. This Word was in the beginning with God, and this Word was God. Now, there are those who will claim that the Greek construction of this favors a translation not that the Word was God, but that the Word was a God. Uh, this is very common among the Jehovah's Witness because they do not believe they, they do not believe in the Trinity. They think the Trinity is heresy. They believe in Jehovah, right? And Jehovah is the only God, and so Jesus is not Jehovah. And so they in order to fight the fact that they that the Bible equates Jesus with Jehovah, they say here, well, the Greek word does not have the article. It is what we call an the definite article. So it would be the difference between writing in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was the God or God himself, a stressing identity, or the word was, if it's an indefinite article, a God, right? Because the article is not there. However, this is not a good argument. It's not true. We see throughout Greek construction uh, that this is a very common thing There's one article at the beginning of a construction, and then there's two substantives that are modified by the same article. That means that they're talking about the same person. The Word was God. The Word and God are actually pointed to as the exact same thing by the way the Greek is constructed. Not a problem, not a controversy at all, really. Um, Jesus is God, the Word is God. This This is what we see here, this is what it says. This is a good translation. So we have this Word. And this word is not just with God. This word is God. And this word created all things. He was a part of creation. Without him, nothing was made. He was an integral part of the creative process that we read about in Genesis 1, 1 through 4. We learn more about this word. I've given it away already. I don't think anyone here is surprised in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we find here that this word was made flesh, this word was made a man, and that his glory was as the glory of the one who was the only begotten of the Father. This is a theme that we'll carry throughout the New Testament, that the word in flesh would call himself the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God and call the God in heaven under whom he submitted his Father. Now, we're not going to get into the only begotten element today. I've talked about that on, particularly on Tuesday nights, any number of times. Why it is important that this phrase, only begotten, be maintained as it is. Many new translations, instead of saying only begotten, they say one and only Son. Trying to remove the creation sort of implication of the idea of being begotten. But there is, again, no dramatic contradiction here. The Psalms quote, Thou art my beloved Son, this day have I begotten thee. And that, when linked to Peter's speech in the book of Acts, links it directly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the day that Jesus was begotten was the day that he rose from the dead. And so that concept of him being begotten is actually theologically very very important. And it has nothing to do with him being a created being and has everything to do with him finishing the work of his father. So again, we need to be careful that we're not just cutting things because we're afraid people aren't going to understand them. Allow the Bible to speak for itself. It's always worked good that way. Let's keep it that way. So we have this theme. And the, Jesus is called the Word of God and he calls himself the Son of God. The only begotten Son of God, and Jesus calls the God in heaven his Father. And so it is that we're introduced to this concept that there is a Son and a Father, and that these two were both in the beginning, and that the Word of God, who became flesh, and who, we, who, who the writer John beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, We know that this is Jesus, the one who would call God his Father, the one who would call himself the Son of God, and that this Son of God is God, co-equal with God in glory, and was a part of the creative process, that he created the world and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Word of God is God, the Word of God is Creator God, and the Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word of God is, in fact, The one who we know as Jesus of Nazareth. So now we have a father and we have a son, both of whom are the Creator, both of whom are God, and yet there are two clearly distinct persons here, right? And we know that they're very distinct persons. There are theories that, you know, God just completely became a man and there was nothing in the heavens and such, and yet there are real problems with this, right? The reason why there are real problems with this is because we see the individual persons of this relationship interacting with each other. The first evidence of this being at Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son in thee. I am well pleased. So here we find an instance. Jesus is baptized. And as he, the word of God in flesh, who was with God in the beginning, and who was God, and who uh, created the world, and without him nothing was made that was made, as he comes out of the water, the Holy Ghost descends upon him uh, in the bodily shape like a dove, right? So Jesus is the bodily shape of a man. The Holy Spirit is the bodily shape of a dove. Um, They're not the same. They can't be the same. One's a dove, one's a man. And then separate from, I mean, the dove didn't start talking, right? So separate from the bodily shape of a dove and the bodily shape of a man, there is a voice from heaven that says, Thou art my beloved Son, and Thee I am well pleased. And so we see the establishment of a distinct relationship between Father and Son, and then we are introduced to a third player here, the Holy Ghost. And it is at this point that I remind you where we began again in Genesis chapters. 1, verses 1 through 4. God who created heaven and earth, the Spirit of God moving upon the waters, the elements being created by the words of God, right? That God said, let there be light. Thus we find a continuity between the very beginnings in Genesis and the interaction between the three distinct persons in the New Testament, all of whom were in the beginning with God, all of whom were a part of the creative act. That you had a father who willed creation into existence. You had a son that was, that was the Word of God. Every time you see, and God said, that is the Word of God, right? That is the Word of God. And then you have the Spirit of God moving, empowering throughout this process. They are one God, doing one creative work. And yet, as we walk through Revelation, we find that those, that one God can be in three distinct forms simultaneously. One called the Father, one called the Son, also called the Word, and then one called the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost. And Jesus went through his ministry calling God his Father, calling himself God's son, and the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. So we read in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is doing things that they don't like him doing on the Sabbath day, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. See, the Jews weren't confused about this. They knew exactly what Jesus is saying. When a person says, well, Jesus never actually calls himself Jehovah, we'll get to that a little bit more in a moment, but, but, but the Jews knew that he was making himself equal with God, that he was co-equal with the Father. Jesus would continue in this chapter to emphasize the reality that the Father was in complete approval and unity with his message and his identity, an identity which is not just co-equal with the Father. But in John 8, Jesus identifies himself as Jehovah. So we read in John 8, verses 54 through 58, Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I, Jesus could get a little sarcastic and a little snarky sometimes, couldn't he? I'll be a liar like you guys are, you know, just just straight out. But I know him, he says, and keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews again knew exactly what he was saying here. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old. And hast thou seen Abraham? See, they knew what he was. Jesus just said that Abraham was happy when he saw my day. Like like when, when he saw me, when he saw my working. Were you saw Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. Jesus says in verse 58: Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was. I am. Notice here that Jesus admits to having existed with Abraham. If he was not admitting to having existed with Abraham, then the Jews would not have asked him, why are you, you're not even 50 years old. How can you have known Abraham? Jesus says, I knew him. I know him. Abraham saw Jesus in his day. This is why the Jews asked him this. And Jesus responds, before Abraham was, I am. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Where have we heard those words before? Back in Exodus 3, when Moses says, I've got to introduce you to, to Israel. What should I tell them your name is? And, and that burning bush, the Lord Who said, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground, said, tell them that I am sent you. And Jesus says here, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus calls himself the I am. And once again, the Jews knew exactly what he had just said. They knew exactly what was going on. They he, he had just called himself Jehovah. He had just said he was the burning bush. <laughs> and they took up stones to kill him, but he escaped. We work ourselves thus to John 14. Philip asks Jesus, show us the Father and we will, and it will suffice us. Jesus replies in John 14 verse 9. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. Jesus says, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is why when a person says that they believe God, if they reject Christ, they don't believe God. If a person has accepted the person of God, they will accept Jesus. No ifs, ands, or buts. No exceptions. Because Jesus is co-equal with the Father. You cannot accept one without accepting the other. You cannot believe in one by faith without believing in the other. Now you can believe in the one without knowing of the other. A person can know that there's a creator God, but not know His name. But you can't know of them and truly by faith believe in one without the other. If you do, the one that you're believing in is not God. It's false God. God made in your own image. A God made in some other image. It is not Jehovah because one who has seen Christ has seen the Father. The Father isn't he, he's in the Father. Jesus then goes on to include the Holy Spirit in this discussion. John 14, verses 25 and 26. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you so that when Jesus is no longer present, the Father will send a third to those who are in the Father by being in the Son, and he will be called the Comforter, also called the Holy Ghost, and he will teach them all things. We pray, we sang that song tonight, open my eyes, illumine me, Spirit divine, the function of the Comforter, the Spirit of God, so that Jesus would say in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So it is we find the Father, the Son, or the Word, and the Holy Ghost are all given divine co-equal status in the Gospels. Jesus calls himself Jehovah. Jesus says, it's good that I leave, because if I leave, then the Comforter will come unto you. I will send my Spirit the Holy Ghost, I will send my comforter unto you. The Father, of course, being acknowledged as Jehovah as well, revealing to us a triunity, or as we call it, a trinity, among three persons, all of whom are Jehovah, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You say, well, pastor, is it perhaps, it it is perhaps clear that the Father is God and that the Son is God, but the Holy Spirit, that one, that, that one's not as clear to this point. I agree with you to this point. What we've seen so far is the Spirit of God with the Father and the Son at creation. We have seen the Son promise that the Father would send his Spirit, called the Holy Ghost, upon his departure. So the Spirit of God worked at creation, which means we know he was there. which which means he was there in the beginning, and we know that he was a part of the creative act, so there's no reason to assume he's not a part of the Trinity, which wouldn't be a Trinity if he wasn't there, right? And we know that he's the spirit of the comfort from the Father. But we find him explicitly called God, and first in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. This one will not be on the screen. I apologize. I must have missed a slide here. In this passage, the people of the church of Jerusalem were selling their property and they were giving it to the church that the church may distribute to the necessity of the saints. And within this context, we read of a man and his wife named Ananias and Sapphira who sold a possession, the Bible tells us, and they kept back a portion of the profit and then they presented it to the apostles as if it were. Everything Now, the problem here is not that they withheld a portion. It was their property. They could do whatever they want with it. There was no obligation for them to sell it. There was no obligation for them to give it away. The problem was that they were trying to lie about it, to look more spiritual, more godly, more whatever, than they were. They presented it as, as, as a whole. And the Bible says in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with, his, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back a part of the price of the land? So Peter just explicitly said, you have lied to the Holy Ghost, right? The one that is called the Comforter in Luke 14. Peter goes on to say, While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. He has lied unto the Holy Ghost. And Peter says, you didn't lie to a man. You have lied to God, to the Holy Ghost, who is God. So Peter said there. So once again, we find this reality that the Holy Spirit is, is again equated with God. Now, all of this comes to a very beautiful summary in 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, where the Bible says this, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Notice as it relates to the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, they are one. And then the 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 testimony the witness of these things on earth they are not one but they agree in one They, they have the same witness and so there's a very unique distinction here where in the first bit they are they are called one in the second they are not called one because they aren't one but they are said to agree in one we find here the clearest definition of what we call the Trinity in the Bible that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and that these three are one. Now, these verses do not appear in most Bibles today. This is called the Johannine Kama. Biblical scholarship has gone out of its way to take this out of the text. And, if I can say it this way, on somewhat solid ground. It's not shallow ground upon which they remove this from the text. These verses in this form were not even found in the very early editions of the Textus Receptus. It was not until the later editions of Erasmus Textus Receptus that this concept, that these verses even found their way into the text. It is not found regularly in the received tra- text tradition, much less the critical text tradition. Uh, and so it is, it, is not, it is not unfounded or surprising that these would be taken out. But once again, through study, there are a lot of very good reasons why it was added, a, very good reasons. Erasmus did not just do it. There, the, 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 the running thing as well, Erasmus was under pressure from certain outside groups to, do his, to, to put it in there to solidify the Trinity uh, as a doctrine, even though it's not taught in the Word of God officially, and so he put it in there in order to appease people, but there are actually very good reasons. I've got a tremendous write-up on it, if you ever want to read it. It's many pages long, um, and I have, I have taught through it before um, on a Tuesday night, but uh, there are very good reasons why these verses, we, we can be confident that these verses ought to be in our Bibles. You're just not going to find them in many. So then what is it that we have? Well, we have one God, and that God is in three persons, three distinct persons, one called the Father, one called the Word, one called the Spirit, but all in one, complete in harmony, without any contradiction of thought, intent, will, or purpose among them. Three distinct persons which function entirely as one, so that they are one God. I often have given the illustration of two people dancing, right? That when they come together, two people, they come together and they're individual people, but they know they both have the exact same intent in mind, which is to dance, and they will move in complete synchronization, one with another, as they are dancing, because they are, they come together as one. You might think of it, another good example of this would be like, like several gears, as one gear turns, the other gear turns, and, and three gears turning all in synchronization. One gear cannot turn without the other ones turning as well. This is the idea of the Trinity. Just as you and I are made up of three parts, body, soul, spirit, entirely interrelated, so that to affect one is to affect all, to function with one is to function with all, I cannot separate one from the others. It does not work that way. I am me. I am a single, coherent, person. I am one person. And yet there are clearly, from the word of God, distinct parts of me. So that even that word death means separation, right? Death is when the material and the immaterial separate from each other. So Jesus died when he gave up the ghost, right? That was the moment of his death because the immaterial and the material separated from each other. He Gave up the ghost, his spirit. So to function with one is to function with all. If my spirit were to leave my body, the immaterial part of me were to leave the material, my body ceases to function. And we see God in a very similar way. Three persons but one God. And this presents what is a very common graphical depiction of a relationship among the members of the Godhead. You've perhaps seen this before. It's very, very simple, clear, well done. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They are single God, They work in 100% union and harmony within themselves. There's no disagreement, there's no, there's no uh, uh, confusion, there's no uh, separation in any way, shape, or form. They function as one entity, but they are, in fact, three distinct persons. And without all three, there is no God. Just like without my body, My my body's not my soul, my my soul is not my spirit, Uh, my spirit is not my body, Uh, but they are all essential. They function to make a single human being. And without all three, I am not human. Now carry this into Philippians 2, right? That's where we were going with this. Carry this into Philippians 2. The reality of the gospel with me as we close this evening. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We speak of Jesus becoming a man. We speak of Jesus Christ bearing our sin. We speak of Jesus Christ crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I've mentioned it before. That is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus does not refer to God as his Father because at that moment, there is a judicial relationship between the first and the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is being punished. He is, the wrath of God is being poured out on him for my sin. And for the first time in the history of history, there's been a separation between members of the Godhead But then, before Jesus dies, he says, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. So that relationship had been reconciled and restored prior to his death. But there was that moment. The idea thus, that the Father was separated from the Son, that for a time in history, the fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken, as the Father made the Son to be sin for us, this was no small thing. This is no small thing. It was for this reason that he cried in agony in the garden, asking, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I am convinced that when Jesus was praying that prayer and sweating, as it were, drops of blood, it was not because he was so afraid of being lashed and whipped and suffocated. It was because he did not want to bear the agony of that separation our sin. That's spiritual death. This unity was disrupted for you and for me. Christ endured this contradiction of sinners for you and for me, and it is with this understanding we are then called to have the mind of Christ, right? It is with this understanding that we're called to be like Christ, to follow in His Footsteps. When we understand exactly what it means that Christ humbled himself, we understand two other things as well. We understand the extent to which we're called to love one another, and we also understand the extent to which the Father has then exalted the Son. That idea that Jesus Christ endured all of that, endured the very contradiction of sinners against himself, this tremendous strain on on this entity the godhead i i can't even understand i'd like to give you an example of somehow your soul being severed from your body and your spirit but i can't i don't even know what that means right i can't we can't even think of that except in death like actually literally dying which he would do you know eventually but that's that's the only picture we get Is that when he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the true death. He would die physically in a moment, but that was, that was the, the, that was the separation. That was, that was the alienation. And that, for only one reason, because it's the only way you and I could be saved. That Jesus would bear our sins in his own body, on the tree. And in this, we are both exhorted and consoled. That in understanding the relationship of the Godhead to each other, we might understand better the relationship of ourselves to God. That in understanding the degree to which Jesus Christ, the the extent to which he went to reconcile us unto the Father, and then he says, let this mind be in you so that as we truly contemplate what it means to be unified as a church, as we truly contemplate what it means to have the mind of Christ, to look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. It is really perhaps best echoed in Paul's sentiments when he was writing in Romans concerning his brethren, Romans chapter ten, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for uh, to God for Israel is that they might be saved, and that as he contemplates this desire, he says that he could wish himself accursed from Christ for his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. That idea—that's Romans nine verse three. That idea that Paul says, I could wish myself anathema from Christ if only my brethren could be saved. Well, that's the mind of Christ, isn't it? That's the mind of Christ. Now, he can't become anathema for his brethren. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done in our bodies, right? And then we will stand before him and hear and the, the, the books will be open and the book of life will be open and we will be judged out of those books and then the book of life will, will be judged innocent or guilty based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. But that was Paul's heart. That was the degree to which he was willing to pour himself out for his brethren. May we carry that into our relationship one with another. May we pour ourselves one into another. May we bear the mind of Christ, understanding what it means that he, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but then, as a co-equal member of the Trinity, made himself of no reputation, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.